You're listening to On Mission with Dr. Matt Davis, a podcast designed to explore the personal mission of everyday leaders. Hear from men and women who are making a difference in their corner of the world and discover what keeps them on mission. Welcome to On Mission with Dr. Matt Davis. I'm Jonathan Sheely. We are joined today by Tony Kinnett, investigative columnist for the Daily Signal and the Heritage Foundation. Tony is a 2017 MBU alumnus living in Greenfield, Indiana with his wife, Bethany. They have an 11-month-year-old daughter. His favorite meal is a rare steak and some potatoes. Tony's hobbies include playing the piano and voice acting. The Indy 11 soccer team and the IU Hoosiers basketball and football teams comprise his favorite sport teams. Tony, my friend, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I will. I have to bring to attention why the look when I said the Indy 11. <laughs> I have no idea what that is. It's soccer. <laughs> okay, so okay. so is it MLS? No. But okay. They, okay. <laughs> hold hold on. It's it's still outdoor, but the, there's a problem. So the MLS is you have all these rules in order to be a soccer team with with the major league. You have to have a specific type of stadium, and you have to do yes. all these fancy marketing things. You're right. You'd be good at kicking the soccer ball. Oh, Indy Eleven's great. We before Minnesota United made it to MLS, we beat the snot out of them regularly. Yes. And then they got up because they had a stadium. And yeah. Indianapolis, no one can. I kid you not. The problem is no they have the money no one can decide where to put the stadium yeah for yeah. years oh it's and just politics soccer is a huge culture in, mm -hmm. in yeah. indianapolis too yeah it is it's huge so many indoor leagues that you were talking you know about. that's right. the problem with the chicago bears <laughs> what? They're, they're, i'm not touching it <laughs> <laughs> i'm a chiefs to, fan if I'm we not just had it. a have better to... location for the stadium the team would be oh yeah they're gonna put it over there. the highway they're gonna put it in arlington Arlington? They're yeah. not going to like replace one of the oases on the bypass just with the Bears stadium? <laughs> no. Uh, they might well, get people might to come. Get more, more yeah, people. I was going to say, yeah, stop at no. Mobile, catch a game. So you uh, have you met your wife, but not at Maranatha. So we have that in common. That is true. There are yeah. wonderful, godly women other than that come to Maranatha. I mean, most of them do, you know, come to Maranatha. I, my family lamented me not finding someone at Maranatha. <laughs> they, my grandmother, seriously, she You thought was all so hope was lost. A little. Oh, no. Because then it was like, well, there's only the people at your local church. And so then it was like trying to get me to people that I just didn't, there was no yes, spark or anything no there. And I'd, I'd the served with a ministry for. for years. We were like siblings. It was so, I was, ah. Oh. So did you meet her on an app or how did you? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, I was so busy like teaching and writing and doing other stuff, and I was I was playing in a, a small orchestra at the time to to de-stress, and a lot of people in that orchestra knew who she was, um, and we had talked a little bit, and then um, the app timed us out, and so we lost connection with each other for like a couple of months, and we both were like, well. So if that's to, meant like, to be, God will. Pay version. We just, I mean, it deleted. You don't even get to go back. <laughs> So we waited a couple months and Fail. it came around on a different app, um, which is a coffee meets bagel, which is just the most millennial sounding name yeah, for an app. I've never heard of it's that right. Uh, it's not. It, it, so we met and I went on our first date. We talked for three hours about like serious stuff about like our faith and, and what yeah. important things were to our life and why we were waiting to do things the right way. And it was one of those after the second or third date we both knew. That's incredible. Yep. And then I left uh, her to go up to Northland to work for a summer to do like directing there and teaching some of their kids they were doing for like an exchange study program. Mm -hmm. And uh, she came up to uh, see me at Northland. That's that a was commitment. an investment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, eight hours yeah. Yeah. all the way there, up from Indiana. You drive yeah. to the edge of civilization and then keep going a few more hours and 
yeah, eventually. It's just, just nothing up there yeah. and no, nothing at all. What a beautiful campus and a great place for that to that kind of an environment. I, the, yeah. the Vietnamese students that I got to teach loved doing, uh, we studied ecology and okay. like advanced ecology because they were far beyond what kids our age were learning in that. And so we would do these in-depth like nature investigations. And I contacted like a local office, not the Oshkosh Zoological Society, I, uh, but- uh, Very prestigious. It's very prestigious, right. but- for all um, four people I had never it. heard of it before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was just a, a really cool experience. I, there's something about wonder people see when they see God's creation in nature. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, there's a light in the eyes, you know? Well, I want to talk to you about that in a little bit. But uh, before we do, you're a Maranatha grad. You lived mm-hmm. in Cary Dorm. I did. We have that in common as well. Mm-hmm. I was Cary 205. I don't know what. I was Cary 205 my first year. Get out of here. Yeah. Yep. And then wow. I moved down to the, the first floor and <laughs> survived the, the lovely chaos of Cary Dorm. Well, was there anything in particular uh, that you want to admit? that you were involved with now that the statute of limitations is mostly so run out? I was never directly involved <laughs> yeah, right. uh, with that's a raid right. to deniability. recover the owl. Um, but I do remember when the owl was stolen and uh, the and was given to a girl's side campus. He was trying to impress some girl on a girl's dorm what a yeah. by uh, giving her the owl. And so we put him on trial and there's a video that has <laughs> not gotten out. We have it still where all of us went down to the basement. Trial. We put him on trial and all of the seniors of which I was once sat in chairs okay. and he ended up cleaning one room for the rest of the year as punishment for, we even got Tim Johns to like you didn't sign off on excommunicate him to Spurgeon? Uh, I don't, am I allowed to make fun of Spurgeon <laughs> on the podcast? I don't think that's well, appropriate. We got in trouble for making fun of Spurgeon while I was here. I mean, no, I, you're the boss. I, I'm not going to go there. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to leave The, the okay. live stream count just dropped yeah, by five. Well, or, or rose. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So they're, they they do have a new version of the Carry Owl because, as I understand it, there was a previous version. It looks so nice. Like just a classic, like beautiful old white sculpture of an owl that looked real. Mm-hmm. And then one of the guys after – it was actually after this whole trial situation – he took it and he chucked it to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And that's not a metaphor. Like, we have a picture of Andre like chucking the carry owl into the Grand Canyon. What in the world? What? <laughs> and the one they replaced it with is this goofy Hobby Lobby cartoon looking hey, that's thing. that's revered. You better be careful. Your it, looks like it, it looks like it belongs in like some old lady's it's garden. It's not about the appearance of it. It's about the respect. The carry owl. There's no dorm on campus that has the same culture. Leland like has an object ca- that it reveres. No, but no one else on <laughs> campus has the same culture as Carrie. That's true. When we would walk through Leland, like people were just in their rooms. Yes. But in Carrie, the doors are open and you're in each other's rooms all the time. Pe- it's that people ask atmosphere. me on the live stream version of the podcast, do you think there will be things that are cut out from what we like aren't hearing when we listen to it on the audio only? This. And I say... Yes. Example, yes. just give Example it. this. <laughs> yeah. so, right. So right. you can only kind of content, you can only get it on the live stream. Right. You got to come for the live if you want the dirt. All right. So this is a podcast devoted to people who are about something bigger than themselves, yes. who are living a life that is for eternity's sake and that are willing to risk and sacrifice and suffer mm. uh, at, at times. And so I, I believe that your testimony, even in your relatively short career thus far really exemplifies that. And so that's one of the reasons we invited you to the campus to speak to the students as a recent graduate 
and tell a little bit of your story. And so this is really an opportunity for us to see that in action. And Jonathan and, has a question for you. <laughs> yeah. And the question that we ask all our guests and we, re- we specifically want to ask you today is, do you have a personal mission statement? How did you come up with it and how do you live it out? Uh, yeah, I, I do have a personal mission statement. It's, it's, it's short and um, it, I'm, it's about service or, or maybe in, in a more shorthand, I, I was made to serve. Uh, there's a lot of times in my life where I thought I was going to serve because that was the work that needed to be done in order to get to easy street. Mm. You know, I wanted to get a master's degree so I could be in administration for a little, oh, maybe I would, you know, it's a little cushier in administration. And then that, there were those opportunities in Indianapolis, which we can get into later where the embezzlement and the laziness and the doing nothing. Oh yeah. Lots of opportunities for embezzlement. We'll chat about it. Uh, but for my personal motto, I keep coming back to whether on in ministry, when I'm working with an, an evangelist and we're doing like contracting, electrical work, something like that, whether it's going to help someone whose car is stalled, doing a story, um, picking up something last minute at, at church that needs done. It's about service. That's what I'm built for. Hmm. And that's where I find my comfort and my peace, that that's where the joy is. That's where I'm happiest, you know, and I guess to a, a secondary motto would be if, um, if I'm not busy, I'm bored. And if I'm bored, I'm in trouble. And so I don't get behind that. that service. Yeah. yeah that, that <laughs> keeps me out of the second phrase. So you are, you're an energetic guy and you seem to me, uh, not restless isn't the right word, but you're not satisfied with what you know, what you've learned. You seem to be like a lifelong learner type of a guy. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I, I love the click moment. So, um, mm. you know, there's a moment when you were sitting in school and you didn't get something. Um, and, and for me, I guess the best example that I used to give is I used to sit in Dr. Molitor's chemistry class and uh, he would be going over something and there was a test coming up. I was not prepared for it. And I was scared because I was trying, but I didn't get it. And it was about um, basically some shorthand way scientists have of knowing where an element is on the table. Just this really creative way you can do so. It's called orbitals. And he explained it in a way that I had never heard it before. And it just popped into place. And and everything made sense from there. And I became obsessed as a teacher with that moment. Mm. And really as a person, when things lock into place and there's there's a greater understanding where I feel as though there's something I was maybe missing for a certain period of time that now I get and I can grab onto it, uh, that is a rush that... I can't really put into more words than that, I what, suppose. What's more fun, experiencing the click moment for yourself or being a part of that as a teacher and seeing it in your students? Can you recognize <sighs> it when it happens? It's a, it, it, It's not a better thing. Oh, you can. I mean, because yeah. the lights come on. I mean, right. you see the eyebrows <laughs> raise, the nose contracts a little bit, the lower lip goes in, everyone, always. And I... It's not as one is better, but they're different feelings. Mm. Um, you know, the difference, I guess, between, you know, coming at home after a long day and seeing your wife and then maybe seeing a friend you haven't seen in a long time. Neither one's better. They just are different kind of experiences. And so working with teachers and parents that are just suddenly getting something, that's wonderful. But also experiencing it yourself in totally different areas, philosophy, contracting, um, something like that from the vast to the mundane. That's right. And they happen in different moments too. The moments where I have the personal aha is usually by myself and I'm studying or we're reading or something. But if you do it with other people, you get to share that joy in that moment with that person 
that's a different kind of experience. It's that bolt of electricity that comes through after a really good, uh, like revival week when all of the students get something that they just either haven't heard for a while or if they've never heard the scripture interpreted in, in that particular light. And it's just, it, it, people talk about it afterwards. It, it, you can almost sense the electricity that runs through a group. I know exactly what you mean. So how, how do you define service? You talked about being made to serve. And we talk a lot about servant leadership. And I think people would much rather talk about leadership than they would about service, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but but you're focusing on the service element. So give me a little bit of insight on what you mean by serving. Something needs done. You see it. Uh, um, so there is, a, to, to put things in maybe more, a more secular tense, there's a show. It's called Parks and Recreation. And um, it's about an Indiana town. And there's this guy on the show named Ron Swanson, a very man's man kind of a character. Right. And he goes to like a housewarming party for two people. He goes into the bathroom and he noticed that the sink is stopped up with a sock to stop a leak. And that there's a broken <laughs> light hanging over the shower. And he takes it upon himself. He's like, it needs fixed. I'm just going to go and fix it. And to me, that's service. Something needs done. Um, and if God's given me a wide range of, of talents and things that he's allowed me to maybe learn quickly, um, whether it's in ministry or whether it's in the secular, whether it's in journalism or, or whatever, and it just needs done. And so it's going to do so because that is a job that needs done. And it really doesn't get a lot deeper than that for me. Well, we live in a world where you can figure stuff out. Mm -hmm. Like there are resources available if you are interested in researching it and finding it out. Oh yeah. You so can, many hundreds of dollars yourself. saved on my car by working right. on it and changing the oil myself. <laughs> right. Really? I mean, I, yeah. that's just an example. You go to YouTube, you find there's a video for it. Mm -hmm. I remember when my wife and I bought our first condo, it wasn't a standalone house in Florida. We couldn't afford it at the time. So we bought a, a condo and we said, you know, this has this kind of linoleum in the kitchen. Was and it an upstairs, downstairs, or a left and no, right? No, they would call a villa, and so it was one level, oh, right? Oh. So we, we had people to the sides of us, but nobody above sure. or below. Bethany and I had a place like that for a while. And so it had the contractor-grade linoleum in the kitchen. Oh, yeah. Mm. You know, small kitchen, yeah. but it's like- I think I saw that stuff on a mesothelioma commercial. <laughs> Could, could we upgrade this, right? So we went to Home Depot, we talked to all the people, we went online as best we could at that time, and we learned how to lay tile, you know? <laughs> oh, you're not even, oh, because I guess the, the heavy duty laminate boards maybe- We didn't have that yeah, back that in my day. That, right? that, that was later. That Laying was later. tile, boy, so that's quite a jump. figured out how to lay porcelain tile and we did the whole job and we were so proud of it. And we invited some folks over. We didn't tell them we had done the job. And they said something to the effect of, oh, look at that. Whoever um, built your house, they laid the tile and they didn't take off the baseboards. That's weird. And Dana and I looked at each other and said, yeah, that's weird. <laughs> and we looked down and it was like we noticed that would have been smart. Like, oh, oh so yeah. we, we just kind of missed a step, but that's how you learn, right? And everybody's yeah. laughing because you guys know exactly yeah. what I'm no, talking about. No, I just about. finished my garage and I got done doing one thing and uh, I, my, I, I did the, well, they have it around here on campus. That's that rubber baseboard that you put the around base, the bottom. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, it has that adhesive on it. And so I put it in my garage and the adhesive was junk. And so I don't know why it didn't occur to me. Instead of just getting adhesive and getting better adhesive, I like got out the staples because I was aggravated. <laughs> I got it done and I'm like, that doesn't oh, look yeah. good. Why didn't I just use adhesive? Oh, like what's wrong with that. me? So you, you learn from 
just going out and researching. You learn from just having the courage to try something and maybe not do it 100% perfectly and learn and do it better the next time. And then ultimately, people look at you and you go, wow, you know how to do so many things. You're so smart. And you're thinking, no, I just wanted to learn it, right? Mm -hmm. And I made it, took it upon myself. Can't sit still. There's an ADHD to it, for sure. <laughs> I, I have to go do. It's exciting to me. But there's a service mindset about that, is being willing <clears throat> to go and be vulnerable and try to figure it out and admit, I don't know what I'm doing yet, but I'll try to figure it out because someone needs something done. It was Dr. Ledgerwood who taught me that. There were times that I really wanted to go and I wanted to do, and I, I struggled because there wasn't there was something I didn't know how to do. Uh, and it was the time I was a music education major is before I switched to science ed. And my music teacher, Jane Bruce, like smacked my hands with a ruler so many times, <laughs> metaphorically and physically. I hope, I hope that's just metaphorically. <laughs> yeah, because I, I couldn't play. I, I love playing piano, but like the classical two hands thinking at once was never my specialty. Uh, and he worked with me and he, I'll never forget, because I would, you have these seminars where you'd have to go play in front of other students and Janet Cheetah would be there and she was so sweet, but still like you're playing for an expert of experts. Yeah. And I was always terrified of being brand new at something and it not being okay. He just, it's okay to be new and be terrible. And it's also okay to say that you're terrible at something. Mm -hmm. It's okay because mm -hmm. then you know that's where you're starting from. And mm -hmm. it, there's not a coddling aspect of, well, you're not bad. You're just new. It's like, no, you're bad. That's why you're practicing. You that's a really better. good point because some people will never try something because they're afraid of not being the best at it. Right. And like it's you, not something you can solve right off the bat either. Yeah. Like no one's going to listen to this and go, oh, I got it. I just have to do this. It, it's going to be a, a struggle over a period of time. Like if you're listening to this and this is the first time you've ever heard, you know, that it's okay to not be good at something, which I would be shocked were that the case, <laughs> you might come back to this a couple of different times. It, it's not an easy thing to learn. And you're going to learn so many different things throughout your life. It makes you useful to the people around you. It makes you, it's, it's why... People revere their dad, right? Like your dad knew everything. And then you get a little older and you, maybe the curtain peels back a little bit and you're like, well, maybe he didn't know everything, <laughs> but, but he was we, just some guy trying his best. Yeah. A dad, a man, uh, makes himself useful. Like you said, see something needs to be done and does it. You know, a, a woman of character is someone who is investing their life in other people and the relationships that God gives us. And I'm I'm awestruck at, at the true concept, I guess, when I think of my wife of, of a Proverbs 31 woman, which you know, we throw around that term a lot, mm -hmm. and, and saying that she's a master of her house and administrator. And that kind of, my, my wife and I are different kinds of useful. Hmm. And, but it's so good to feel wanted and needed because of your usefulness. And that's not, a, that's not even a, a hedonistic pleasure. Um, but that's something that really sits with you. It's like, I was useful today. And then you sleep so well. And that's, you know, uh, throwing something off the wall here. That makes so much sense that the, the object that we're pressing towards is well done, thou good and faithful servant. To hear that from the ultimate judge of whether or not you were useful. But you have to work your way backwards. I was just talking to some students this morning about the fact that if you're going to accomplish a big project, because we were talking about in the class, you know, the final project, and I could tell the eyes were kind of big and they were thinking like, how would I ever do something that big? So, okay. How do you eat an elephant? One, One bite, bite at, at a time, time. right? But, but <laughs> beyond that, you have to plan for where you want to be and when you want to be mm -hmm. there and work backwards. 
And so you're talking about a lifetime of faithfulness and, and service. And one little other element, we don't know how long our life is going to be. Yeah, that's right. And so we have that aspect of it as well. And so if we want to stand at the judgment and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, how do I need to live today in order to position myself for an uncertain future and for what I hope will be an ultimate certainty in reality is that one day I'm going to stand before God and give an account. That'll change the way we live every day. It does. For me, I always struggled though with the, we just have to take it day by day because there's not really a time when I wake up in the morning and go, well, today I'm going to, for for some reason, I'm not super theological and philosophical in the morning. I wake up and I'm not, I don't think of my entire day as I'm going to go. Cause I, you know, I had everyone from, um, I had everyone from sergeants to, you know, bosses and and leaders in my life. We got to make your bed first thing in the morning and all of this. But I found, at least personally, that if I focus on each task as a measure of service, so taking like it just by chunk on this project, on this task, you know, for your students, that bit mm-hmm. by bit, mm-hmm. I guess it's an easier way for me to quantify doing it to the Lord. I just never thought the whole day-by-day mindset. There, Hope I didn't like there, throw there you is off the rails a, there. No, I think <laughs> I, I, I'm agreeing with you. There is a, a benefit to having a regimen. And I think yeah. what you're yeah. talking about is Absolutely. having a self-discipline to get you through what you don't feel like doing. Right. And we do have rhythms to the day. And for some people, it might be uh, more in tune with their spirituality, to put it that way, uh, in the evening or at night than they are in the morning. I'm not a morning person. I had friends that did the whole evening devotion thing, and that was always the wildest thing on earth to me. <laughs> you remember Joey Neal? He does his mm-hmm. devotions in the evening. How do you do that? He's like, well, it's a great time to reflect over what's going on with the day. He's like, man, in the evening, I want to sleep. Like that, my morning <laughs> coffee, it's like perfect. You have your morning coffee, you do your devotions. They're, right. they're made for each other. But the regimen and the discipline of mm-hmm. things that you have settled in your life, uh, that this is how I'm going to approach it, and then you don't have to go through life questioning that every day and be right. like, okay, today I'm going to make my bed for you, Lord. Uh, well, I, I, yeah, we do everything to the glory of God, but perhaps I make my bed because that's like the habit and I respect my wife and our family and you know, you do the mm. little things. Well, there's an element of order that honors yeah. the, the creator that's part of that regimen that you're talking about that we all can respect. I mean... You guys, when you're finished mowing the lawn, do you ever just stand back and look at the lawn? Yeah. You do that? Is there oh, like, yeah. it's a great feeling. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know he does. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. I forgot. You're very big onto that. <laughs> yeah. That memories are flooding back. And that yeah. kind of orderliness and just as a science teacher, looking at how his creation was so detailed and precise that to mimic the creator in that fashion is an element in and of itself that, that can be of praise. Well, let's talk about that. You were a music major, and there's certainly order and uh, discipline with that. But then you transitioned into being a science ed major. So tell me how you, how or why you kind of made that transition. It just wasn't going well. It was mm. just it, and it was a thing. It was a kind of situation where I, I just started to dread the classes. I, I I didn't feel as though I felt like I was a screwdriver being used as a hammer. Um, and it just wasn't working very well. And I knew that I was supposed to teach. I knew that he wanted me in education. I just didn't have any clear guidance at the time on what subject it was. And I'd always loved science. And so I had talked to a few professors and, um, 
I switched my major thinking, I'm going to try this out, go to a few of these classes and see if science is great. And uh, um, Coach Delosier uh, went into an academic chapel for education majors, so all of them. And she announced, hey, we have, you know, Tony switching his major, something like that. It was also my first academic chapel. And she said, okay, is everyone else's schedule pretty much down pat? And everyone said, yeah, I think we're all good to go. And so she took the entire math and science ed chapel and just made my schedule for the next couple of years. Broken out had students offering advice. And oh, wow. I don't know why that gave me such a sense of comfort. Like, wow, they're going to really make sure that I make up the time and do it right. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, it, it stuck. And after a couple of science classes, I was like, oh, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. You, you said it wasn't going well in the music ed side of things. When you made the change, was there a part of you that felt like, is this a failure? Am I up to this? Or is this going to be a struggle too? Or were you pretty confident at that point? Oh, no, this is definitely the right thing. I don't think I've ever really had moments through a lot of these changes where um, I switched my major or uh, my first student teaching placement was abysmal, horrible. Actually, was the school fired me from my first student teaching placement in Newcastle. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. No. Oh, yeah. Well, because I was a Christian science teacher and that's, yeah. Okay. Uh, but then after that, when I was left IPS, we're just like, oh, well, is this a failure? And I can't really say I ever had those moments where I asked that question because I knew I was doing everything I was supposed to do. And if changes come, then this must be out of my hands. Uh, and I don't think it, it's, I hope it's not me being careless, but- where, where does that confidence come from for you? I've, I, uh, I mean, I've, I've been saved since I was four and, and, and I've been, I've had a relationship with Christ since then. And throughout my life, I've been surrounded uh, at Grace Baptist in Newcastle with really, really great parents and grandparents who always pointed me towards a relationship with God so that I always trusted he knew what he was doing. I, I don't think I've ever really had a time in my life, and I count myself very thankful, where I foolishly think he's making a mistake or that he's going to leave me behind. Um, a phrase that was given to me by Riley Woodfin um, while I was here was that Christ didn't bring you here to leave you here in the, in the trials and the rough spots. And that always just got me through. I never thought I was a failure. He's just not done. I think there's something interesting about people who uh, are naturally reflective. The people who are naturally reflective sometimes have regrets because of their reflection. I'm not a naturally reflective person. I have to like set aside the time to go back and think about what happened because I tend to think the same way you do, where as soon as something happens, I'm on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. I'm, 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 I very much get with the, if I'm, if I'm uh, not doing anything, I'm going to get in trouble. Right. And I think at that stage of life where you're talking about service and faithfulness and when things happen poorly, you're like, okay, we're moving on to the next thing. It's not necessarily the fact that you feel a failure. You, you might think that event didn't go well mm -hmm. or there's an event that failed, right. but you're on to the next thing. And uh, my, my wife is the opposite. She, she tends to think backwards a lot and, and she's I very- I can remember that from Chambers, She's yeah. very concerned about how things go and wants to make things, she's very concerned about the way people feel about how things go and it makes her a good teacher. Um, but we're a good balance to each other in, in that fact because you do have to have both an improvement mindset and it's hard to have an improvement mindset if you're not doing the right kind of reflection. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I, I, I'm very thankful for my wife in that way. I'm also thankful for really great counsel that I've had in my life and, and men that I call. Um, and I'm much, I'm much more of a call guy than a text guy. I don't know. I, I would rather talk on the phone to someone than try to type out all of the junk that's running through my mind. 
and the rabbit trails. But a lot of great counsel that points me to when, necess- when necessary to reflect on on my own personal failure because you, there are moments where I goofed. Uh, Tim Johns, when he was my dean of men, he discipled me for like a year and a half. Um, just we ate lunch weekly, and there was not always there wasn't something serious. It was just I needed discipleship, and he would at times confront me with, "Hey, look, you you goofed here, man. You, you said something dumb." That was something he said a lot to me. And so, you know, there are times where I have to look and say, yeah, my foot went to my mouth and I helped it in, that it's not a bad thing to reflect. I guess I'm really thankful that God saw ahead that I would need that and puts people in my life to let me know, hey, Mm -hmm. it's time to reflect. Yeah. Um, You need that. But your career hasn't necessarily unfolded according to plan A. Or B or C. Yeah. I, I can think of all these times I had these lofty ideas. Oh, I'm originally I didn't think I was going to teach. I thought I would take my science education degree and go work in IT somewhere. And okay. uh, then I actually started teaching in some of the senior level classes, and I loved it. And so then I wanted to teach, and uh, I got a job teaching. And then I wanted to be in administration. I wanted to. I really wanted to be a professor with the tweed jacket and the elbow patches and all that. Hey, life Fit- is young, you know. You got. You got. Plenty of time to I, work that I way. I have always held that that open. <laughs> don't don't tempt me. But that's where I thought I, that I, w- I wanted to do. And so that didn't work. Then I thought I would be the principal at Knightstown for a while. There was an opening. And that didn't happen. Uh, and I got married. We moved to Indy. And then I thought I'll work at this school and, and rise to the ranks and be a professor. That didn't happen. And then I got the director job at IPS. And I thought, oh, I'll just do this for a while until I go to a different district that's not so insane. And I'll be their director of curriculum in general instead of just science curriculum, just curriculum. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen. And then I, so there have been a lot of moments where, oh, I think this is how it's going to go. I don't think there's been a time yet where I have said, this is where I'll be in five years. And none of those have worked at all. And so I don't put much stock in them anymore. But that I, wasn't, that wasn't failure? No, because I don't think the circum. It wasn't as though I I set out my goal and I said I'm going to do this and here are all of the things I'm going to to do to get there. Maybe we put too much stock in the plans. We should make plans. We should mm-hmm. try to work toward towards things, but you can't hold those plans so tightly that you wrap your identity into the plan instead of allowing the Lord to direct maybe differently than. And, and allow the plan to accomplish something he had in mind versus maybe an end result that we had. You know, we often say that, you know, when the Lord closes a door, he opens a window. And I think that in, in my life, it's it's been a little more immediate yeah. that I, he, it hasn't been that I had my sights on this and then they were dashed and I had to find a new height. Instead, it was, I was doing that thing that I was up to. And then out of nowhere, this opportunity came up and the Lord's right. like, I have this for you and think about it, pray about it. I can't even tell you how many times I've contacted family, friends, my church, and said, be praying. God's put an opportunity in front of me. And that ends up working. And that's then where he has me for the next thing. And that's really, in the last five years, God placing opportunities that I wasn't expecting, wasn't looking for, wasn't asking for. So have you learned through those experiences... How has going through those experiences... I'm sorry. I'm, I feel like I'm being difficult. No. Taught you... No, you're... You, you're just answering it according to the way you, I don't have anything particular I'm looking for. I'm just thinking through how this has unfolded for you. And it's interesting to me, your, your character development and your mindset, because what a lot of people would see as life 
crushing defeat you've you've ridden right up on top of and crested the wave to the next thing. And that's the level of resilience I'm trying to probe a little bit to say, what? why am I not seeing that in so many people your age? Whereas you mm-hmm. have found, he, you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. He, you, you found something in all of this that has allowed you to overcome it. And I want I want people to, 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 so, to think about I mean, that. You, you know how when we were young and we would hear example and example and example of uh, from scripture and then also from from people in our lives that God just answered their prayer. There was all of the prayer and then the check came through. Yeah. And, I, and I see I see kind of the almost not quite an eye roll, but like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking yeah, about because exactly. we've heard it time and time again. For me, it really is internalized. And I, I told a pastor a couple of years ago that going into a lot of situations, I don't spend a ton of time in prayer. Lord, I really hope that you do this and that you provide because I just, I expect him to. Hmm. And I, I'm not taking him for granted. I, mm-hmm. my, my whole trust is in there because I have yet to see him fail. And if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be, I've done stupid things before and I've gotten, I've paid the price for it. And so if I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do for him and then whatever fallible, young, stupid idea I have of what I think is successful doesn't work out, it's because he has something that is genuinely better. There's no there other example he... He gave me a series of talents. He's going to use them until I'm, I'm, you know, until his purpose for me is fulfilled. I'm along for the ride, I suppose. I feel like there's something about our generation that saw those stories as inspirational. And sometimes we as a generation have turned it into overconfidence and arrogance. But if you use it in the right way, that energy is very, uh, use the right word, empowering to do the, the daily thing, to do the right thing each and every day and take the opportunities. And like you said at the beginning, there's the service mindset that you have to see the opportunity before you can do anything about it. And the, the faithfulness mm-hmm. comes in seeing and then doing right away. And then you just, you're doing the thing. I, I think of how many times when we listen to the story of Maranatha and how it got started, Dr. Cedarholm was pretty confident. <laughs> and he did a lot of things that if you look by the books, maybe you wouldn't I, have done it. I've often thought like a planner and a builder, an architect type, an engineer type, an accountant type would never have started Marinette. Right. It and, took a visionary that did something kind of kind of crazy and outside the box. Yeah. And may, I don't know for you, Tony, but for me, this is something that I see for other of my friends at this age and stage where we have some skill sets. We've gone through some things and it's okay because we've seen other people go through things and God has carried us through. Is that, is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. I I think that's a a more articulately, articulately uh, put way of, of, of digging into that, that a lot of my family and I I feel, I feel bad that uh, at times my dad and my grandmother specifically have asked, you know, don't, they really wish I think that I would have just stayed in the classroom in, in Eastern Central Indiana and just taught at a quiet level because mm-hmm. they're, you know, and for good reason, they worry about the chaos and the stress and people coming after us and, and instances that are scary. Um, and also the uncertainty. I mean, you know, setting fire to your career, you know, heading upwards in education was scary to a lot of people. But I I guess that for me, I don't, I never had another option mentally. I, I was surrounded and very blessed to be surrounded by the atmosphere that Maranatha provides when I was young and growing up at Grace Baptist in Newcastle all my life. And 
it's, yeah, there's an arrogance. I could run off and say, well, if God's going to protect me, I can just, you know, go do whatever I want. But in reality, it's, I don't have to have the stress of worrying where I'm going to be five years from now because he's already thought of it. And I can see that in so many other people, the the decision to worry about it doesn't really come in. Uh, I There are just other things to me. I Is guess. that just your personality or? Realistically. Let me, let me ask uh, the question this way. I don't want to get into necessarily what the issues were and all of that, but you made a very courageous decision to expose some things that you felt were, were not right. And I want to understand how you overcame the fear. You were a newlywed. You had a baby on the way. Your wife was, I think you said, in the hospital through some of this uh, in the late stages of her pregnancy. And so you had a lot going on in, in your, your personal life that way. And now professionally, uh, you're like, oh, man, I, I have to take a stand here. I'm sure there was fear. How did you deal with the the fear factor and all that? I would say there was less fear because I had spent the last year before that with my time in Indianapolis doing nothing. And every day I had sat, I, I, was, I was sitting through part of my soul, it felt like, just my being just dying because I was watching all of this stuff that was wrong. And uh, we came to a point, I knew that we would be okay because God always has taken care of us. And my wife was very supportive throughout the entire thing. Um, and I had some connections that I'd made through writing um, and, you know, talking about investigating. I had actually been recording a lot of things at IPS for a long time, just in case I needed them. Um, I guess foreshadowing to the journalism that I would hop into but overcoming the fear was more of everything's risky. Everything's risky. Staying here and worrying if I'm eventually going to be found out is risky. You know, my grandmother posting videos of me singing in a quartet at Grace in Newcastle. And when they find that, I mean, I've never hidden, I'm writing, I was writing for an outlet before I started Chalkboard Review called Lone Conservative. What, what are you saying? That, that if you were known to be a believer and a conservative that that would have been detrimental to your career in public education? Oh, absolutely. Actually, there was an incident with HR uh, before when a colleague of mine was upset that on the day that Rush Limbaugh passed away, I tweeted out, uh, rest in peace, Rush Limbaugh. He basically changed the stage for um, independent journalists. Like he invented the Patreon model, invented it. Like sure. there was no such thing as an independent journalist before Rush. Regardless, and I wasn't an avid listener. I just respected that he had done that. And I tweeted that out, and a colleague of mine who was a math director, he got very upset called and like wrote terrible things about me in this email, wanted me fired, wanted the person who hired me fired, and basically went into this – it was the first time that I ever heard the term Christo-fascist. And uh, I was brought into an HR meeting, and this was right after the cutoff in April of 21 when you have to let someone know you're not renewing their contract in education. And – they brought me in there and I thought they were going to say, look, what he said was wrong. We apologize. And they started off by saying he was very brave for reaching out and talking to you and talking to us. And I thought at that moment, I was like, okay, there's a timer. There's a timer. And so a lot of people think that, you know, I, oh, I just got to a point and I snapped and it was done. No, I knew that my contract wasn't going to be renewed the next year. Yeah. I wasn't trying to go out in a blaze of glory. I had conversation before, like, I'm not interested in reporting on Indianapolis while I work here. 
But once they asked me personally to lie to parents, especially the Hispanic families of Indy, who I am very affectionate towards, uh, that was just that was crossing the line. That was asking to bow before Nebuchadnezzar's statue for me. I think there's something really important to park for a second. When Christians are involved in the public sector, we all are exposed in some way, you know, for being Christians. And that's not as popular as it used to be. And so there's this mindset of, um, or it's not as normal as it used to be. And so there's this mindset of, oh, once you leave the college scene, you'll go into the world and then the battle will start and you got to be okay with that and you got to know. And I understand where the heart comes from, where it's like, this is in our college circle in our college scene here at Maranatha on campus, this is a time, it's kind of a greenhouse effect where you need to grow, you need to really double down and, and um, understand who you are and it's who an God interesting is. interesting way, I've never heard it put like that. Um, but what I think is important to, to put in perspective here is anyone going into a secular environment can have one of these moments where their ethics are, are, are questioned, whether they want you to get rid of your ethics or they just don't like your ethics. Um, you get into this position and, you know, something that we said, we, we say a lot, and I think you even mentioned it this morning, you have to know before the situation happens how you're going to respond. Absolutely. And what's powerful about your story is that you saw the, you saw the, the moment when the culture changed for you, where, mm-hmm. where you were changed and you go, okay, but I'm still going to be faithful. And I think what's cool about right there, what you just said, is you didn't bail out then. Because there was still work for you to do before things came to a head. And I'm assuming, I don't know all the stories, but I'm assuming you had an impact on the students that you were working with and the other faculty that you were working with between that first instance of, oh, this isn't good, and the final instance where it's like, okay, time to move on. There's there's a moment where you realize the ship is going to sink anyway, so I might as well use the rest of of this time profitably. Yes. And that moment for me in April was like, okay, let's start getting some affairs in order. And I, I did. I, I reached out to some friends. Uh, Chris Rufo is a friend of mine, and we started talking about some things. And there were individuals who wanted me to go nuclear at that moment. I was like, it's not the time. I'm not out there just for the, I don't want the Tony Kinnett show. I don't want people, oh, Tony, he's so, I'm not interested in that. Well, that would greatly diminish the impact of your message if you did exactly. that. And also the, the teachers that, that would immediately see that as, as a power grab or, or something else. Because the term grifter gets thrown out a lot. Someone who just does something for there money are, and attention. There are a lot of people like that on both sides. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I see uh, people selling stuff using political lingo and whipping people into a frenzy just so they can sell whatever merchandise they have to and happen it, to be offering. It frustrates me because I have the same amount of uh, time on the clock that they do. So I was asked to go speak at the Indiana legislature to address the Senate over a, a bill that was being considered about critical race theory. And listening to some of the other individuals that were in there ranting and raving and screaming on both sides, it was really discouraging to see this is what's possible and this is who you can turn into and and think that you're doing something righteous and think that you're doing something really important. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's a balance. And and that's again, that's why I go back to the service. Just focus on the service. Is if I if I continue just the next story that I release, the next radio show that I'm doing, the next act that I'm I'm focusing on, it's also a bit of insurance against Tony's ego and Tony's pride. Right. So we are seeing a resurgence in school choice. 
And that has led to thousands of people that had no option to choose a Christian school, private education for their Mm. kids, Uh, actually for the first time having an option. And what we're finding is that when people have the option to choose an alternative, they do. (laughs) And there are thousands in Iowa just this last week. Uh, passed, actually maybe this week, uh, passed an extraordinary school choice bill and uncapped, and you can take $7,000 and take it anywhere you want to go. And so we're finding that. But, and man, I hesitate to ask this question because of your experience. I don't want to put you on the hot seat. Oh, I have no skeletons, no third rails. No, no, I I just, not not for your sake, but for the sake of the answer, what, what would you say to a ed major who's considering career path and the potential of, I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna have a ministry and, and teach in a public school the way they are at this point. Now, maybe India is different and I realize that it depends on the district, but you've lived it. What, what advice is there? Uh, w- you know, what, what would you say? If God has given you a passion to go teach in public schools, do so. Uh, do so because that's what you were called to do and that's what you are built to do. A lot of times people think that, you know, we have a calling and then we kind of choose how to prepare ourselves for this calling when in reality, God is building you for the calling. He is making you to order for that specific circumstance. God gave me a lot of talents when I was growing up that he has now used in various ways that I would never have been able to anticipate or sharpen things for specifically. Mm -hmm. So to the ed major out there who's saying, you know, I really am considering going into the public school for a public school ministry, that was not my mindset. I didn't view it as though I was going to be a public school ministry. I just, that's just kind of where I knew God wanted me was in the public school, which is kind of two, kind of two different things because some do have that burden. I would say go for it. See where God leads you. It may be a small rural school or an urban school, and there may be just one soul that you touch on staff, or there may be students that you impact, and you aren't going to measure that impact. You shouldn't try to measure that impact that you have because that kid that you impact in that one private setting may go on to impact others in a way that God has designed specifically. The, the the external circumstances that may factor into the fear that you have or the political assertions that you have, God used me while I was in IPS with a lot of teachers and students, even if I would have maybe in you know my more elementary view of, of how I view where I want him to put me, even if I would have rather have been somewhere else in a more comfortable environment. I think you were a very effective teacher of science from even the perspective that you had, so-called, that wasn't popular in the system, you were you were seeing success in the classroom, and it was it was almost in spite of that that they treated you this way. <laughs> now, right? and, and that was the fun part of it because uh, some of my critics since have said, "Well, you know, you know, Kenneth was fired from IPS, so that means that he's you know no good in education." But then I asked Indianapolis uh, about uh, I'd say five or six months ago to release my evaluations, and. To their credit, very quickly, very respectfully sent me my evaluations, and they were as close to, to flawless in a, in a weighted system as it, as it can be. They were like, no problems, good in the classroom, good with teachers, high ratings on the professional developments that I led. And uh, be good at your job because it's it's very fun to teach and to be good at that and then have people questioning 
why are you different? Why is your classroom working? And yeah. then yeah. that opens up so many doors for conversations that are going to change some lives. Well, that's pretty key, isn't it? That Absolutely. You, you should be good at your job to the glory of God. Absolutely. And what that does in enhancing your testimony because of that. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Tony, this has been so much fun. Thank you for coming on to the show today. Thank you for your ministry to the students. They need to see people right out of college doing what you're doing mm -hmm. and taking the next step and seeing the opportunities. We appreciate your ministry. We, we appreciate your testimony. Oh, thanks for having me on. I Honestly, going out right after college and, and getting your hands dirty in, in the work, whether it's in the secular world or in the, in the solely ministry-focused world, it, it's fun. It is. I, I, people are like, mm -hmm. why are you doing this? It's fun. I'm, yeah. I'm really enjoying the work. It's great. Well, we've enjoyed having you on campus and certainly having, having you on the On Mission podcast. Thank you for joining us today. On Mission is a production of Maranatha Baptist University. Subscribe to On Mission on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review as this will help other growing leaders find these conversations. For information about our guests, previous episodes, and general information about On Mission or MBU, go to mbu.edu slash podcast. Join us again next week as we examine what keeps leaders on mission.